Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The Cary Lake-Katie Hobbs saga took yet another turn on yesterday. An Arizona judge issues an ultimatum to a holdout county. We have the story. President Biden admitting to some glitches in the Inflation Reduction Act after criticism from the French president. But Biden says he makes no apologies for the law. Over a billion dollars worth of PPP loans went to top law and accounting firms. That's what a new report found. Most of the PPP loans ended up being grants, meaning companies don't have to pay them back. America's chaotic pullout from Afghanistan last year reportedly served as Chinese propaganda. A report by the Department of Defense says the Chinese regime used the evacuation to influence U.S. allies. An Arizona County's Board of Supervisors certified their jurisdiction's midterm elections results on Thursday. This at the order of a judge three days after they missed the statutory deadline of November 28th. And today's Daniel Monahan has the story. Judge Casey McGinley of the Pima County Superior Court instructed Cochise County's Board of Supervisors to convene and declare the results official by 5 p.m. on December 1st. Here's Carrie Lake on Real America's Voice. Either our courts help us out right now, or I fear we lose this country. Judge McGinley ruled that the failure of two Republican supervisors to certify the results before the state's legal deadline was illegal. On November 28th, Republican supervisors Peggy Judd and Tom Crosby voted to postpone certification. We need to make sure that we've drilled down to the lowest level on this, on something that's this critical and this um, substantial. They wanted to review claims that the county's voting equipment was not properly certified in accordance with the law. Supervisor Judd says verifying computer data is important. I myself have a hard time trusting any computer. I don't even trust my cell phone, and it's a flip phone, and I don't trust it. Following the certification on December 1st, state officials in Arizona will now be able to proceed with statewide certification on Monday. This after the board voted 2-0 to zero to certify the outcomes of the November 8th midterm elections. Democrat Ann English and Republican Peggy Judd cast the deciding votes to certify, with Republican Tom Crosby abstaining from the court-ordered hearing. Earlier this week, after the two Republican members of the board voted to delay certification, Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs sued Cochise County. According to Hobbs's lawsuit, failure to certify the results before December 1st would sow great confusion and doubt about the integrity of Arizona's election system. Hobbs has often faced criticism for refusing to recuse herself from supervising an election where she is a candidate. Meanwhile, Carrie Lake earlier said that she is working with lawyers on a legal case to challenge the election in Maricopa County. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden wants his party to change the order for nominating contests in the 2024 primary elections. Biden suggests holding the early contests in this order. February 5th in South Carolina, February 12th in Nevada and New Hampshire, February 19th in Georgia, and February 26th in Michigan. The president says the early nominating contests need to reflect an electorate that is more diverse racially, economically, and geographically. He also wants to get rid of caucuses. For decades, the first two nominating contests have been the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. New Hampshire Senator Maggie Hassan and the New Hampshire Democratic Party blasted Biden's proposal. Hassan said under state law, New Hampshire will continue to hold the nation's first presidential primary. 
President Biden yesterday said there are some flaws in his Inflation Reduction Act that have raised concerns in Europe. But Biden says the U.S. can make some tweaks to satisfy allies. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Always count on one another as allies and friends. President Biden Thursday night honored French President Emmanuel Macron with the first state dinner of his presidency. At a joint news conference, Biden said he and Macron spoke about European concerns of the Inflation Reduction Act. Biden said he makes no apologies for the law, but... There are occasions when you write a massive piece of legislation, and so there's obviously going to be glitches in it and need to reconcile changes in it. Macron and other European leaders are concerned about incentives in the new law. Those incentives favor American-made technology, including electric vehicles. Macron said the subsidies would be an enormous setback for European companies. He said Europe wants to succeed with the U.S., not against it. Macron also said the U.S. and France would resynchronize their clean energy efforts. The two leaders also discussed the war in Ukraine. Macron said he'll never urge the Ukrainians to make a compromise that's not acceptable to them. We have to respect the Ukrainians to decide the moment and the conditions in which they will negotiate about their territory and their future. Overall, Macron said he and Biden had a very good discussion. Meanwhile, U.S. Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo Thursday applauded a European Union deal for a $60 a barrel price cap on Russian oil exports. It's in the range of prices that we've been talking about for a while in terms of creating and helping us do two things. One is reducing Russia's revenues, but the second one is making sure that we keep Russian barrels on the market. Adeyemo said the price of gas has come down from the summer highs, but prices are still too high overall. He said they're trying to ease supply chain pressures to bring inflation down and at the same time make sure the American economy is competitive. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. President Biden signed legislation Friday to avert a nationwide railway shutdown. The House and Senate both passed the legislation earlier this week. Without their action, a rail strike could have become a reality as soon as next week. One sticking point that wasn't part of the legislation was paid sick leave for rail workers. The House passed the sick leave measure, but it failed in the Senate. President Biden said today this legislation at least averts a strike, but says he'll go back to the table to get sick leave covered, not just for rail workers, but for all workers. A new report says federal officials forgave over a billion dollars worth of PPP loans given to top law firms and accounting offices. The analysis states those firms might not actually have needed the money to save jobs during the pandemic. An astonishing $1.4 billion in forgiven PPP loans flowed to the largest and most successful law and accounting firms across America. That's when an investigation by Open the Books allegedly found. Open the Books is a nonprofit watchdog that uses public information laws such as the Federal Freedom of Information Act to make government spending public. Their investigative report is scheduled to be released on Friday, but the Epic Times obtained an advanced copy ahead of time. The analysis found that federal officials forgave over $800 million in Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, loans handed out during the pandemic to more than 100 of the nation's top law firms. In another, almost $640 million were reportedly given to hundreds of elite accounting offices. As described by the Department of Treasury, the PPP was established in 2020 to provide small businesses with the resources they need to maintain their payroll, hire back employees who might have been laid off, and cover applicable overhead. 
The new report says that it is an open question whether many of the firms needed a taxpayer's subsidy to save any jobs during the COVID pandemic. Many racked up record revenues while their equity partners made millions of dollars. The loans were administered by the Federal Small Business Administration, and the vast majority of them were subsequently turned into grants, which didn't require repayment. According to the report, firms with 500 employees or fewer met eligibility requirements. However, Congress didn't anticipate that big law and the largest accounting firms would cash in so profitably. NTD reached out to the Federal Small Business Administration, but didn't hear back before broadcast. China has used America's chaotic Afghanistan pullout last year for propaganda purposes. A report by the Department of Defense says the pullout helped China erode U.S. relations with its allies. A new report by the Department of Defense, or DOD, has revealed that the Chinese regime used President Biden's chaotic pullout from Afghanistan in 2021 to create doubt among U.S. allies about the United States' strategic leadership and global influence. The DOD issued an annual report titled Military and Security Developments Involving the People's Republic of China 2022. It says Chinese officials sharply criticized the hasty U.S. pullout from Afghanistan and pointed to the withdrawal as evidence that America is an unreliable partner and declining power. According to the DOD, this effort by the Chinese regime was part of a carefully conceived effort to make U.S. allies rethink their relationship with America because China sees those alliances as a threat. The report states that China employed a wide range of diplomatic tools throughout 2021 to erode U.S. influence globally and subvert U.S.-backed security partnerships such as the Quad, Australia, India, Japan, and the United States, and AUKUS, Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. The DOD's report also touched upon how China is continuing to try to expand its influence and power. One of the communist regime's strategies is its military civil fusion, or MCF, which is partly used to get a hold of technology that actually belongs to civilian entities and then use it for military purposes. The report says China pursues this strategy to combine its economic and social development with its security strategies. The goal being to, quote, build an integrated national strategic system and capabilities in support of China's national rejuvenation goals. The DOD says MCF includes a variety of efforts, like adapting scientific initiatives for military purposes and imposing military requirements on civilian organizations. We zoom in on Disney for a moment. The company is caught in controversy surrounding LGBT issues and young school children allegedly being sexualized. The CEO says he plans to quiet down culture war controversies, and he insists so-called woke issues are not political issues. Our next guest offers us some analysis on the type of content Disney is creating and how American parents are reacting. Joining us now is Terry Schilling, president of the American Principles Project. Thank you for making the time today, Terry. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Disney CEO Bob Iger says he is sorry to see his company pulled into an argument with Florida lawmakers over a ban on sex and gender discussions in elementary school. He says the company still pushes the pro-LGBT inclusion message. So what does this apology mean and what is a signal to parents? It means that they're going to try and stay out of these political battles while continuing to put uh, this type of graphic and offensive content into uh, our children's literature and our children's movies and, and media consumption. It's it's very concerning, and uh, we need to continue boycotting and fighting against Disney to, to put a stop to this. And is Disney CEO backtracking here and changing direction? Is it that parents can now trust Disney not to put what some have called these woke messages into their content? 
no, we'll never be able to trust Disney again, right? And I wouldn't trust really any of these multi-billion dollar, uh, you know, secular, self, self-proclaimed secular uh, uh, movie companies or media companies. They, they all have an agenda. They, they have all been taken over by sexual activists who really are targeting our kids. They want to change how everyone thinks about sex and they have to start with our kids because their ideas are just so unnatural and disordered. Um, so no, I wouldn't trust Disney anytime soon. I don't think this is a, a real change of heart. I think it's a, a CYA and he's just trying to save their stock price from continuing to tumble. Now, independent journalist Christopher Rufo obtained videos in which Iger took questions from employees at a town hall meeting. Iger said it must strike a delicate balance between talking and listening to the audience in regards to its inclusion message. What do you think this means? I think it means he's leaving the door open to continue doing what they're doing, right? They're, they, you go to Disney World today, it's no longer a family company, right? It's, it's, it, Disney is actually for a bunch of adults who have refused to grow up. I, I, I took my family to Disney last year and I was shocked because there were hardly any children. It was all grown adults. This is now a company that is totally lost its its way. It's no longer the company that Walt Disney founded to help children learn lessons through fairy tales and, and to learn the morals of, and uh, these stories. It is now set uh, a totally debased um, and uh, disordered uh, morality that they're pushing on our kids. And uh, we we just have to keep fighting. It's these aren't these are not sincere promises. Terry, that's an interesting statistic about the demographics of the viewers here. Now, Strange World has just been released, and it suffered one of the worst theatrical releases and has an openly gay main character. What does this suggest? Well, it suggests that Americans are polite, they're kind, but they don't want to talk about sexuality. They don't want to think about other people's sexuality. They don't want you to be in their face pushing a sexual agenda. They want to be left alone. They want to raise their kids. They 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 try these these gay movies all the time, and they almost always flop. I think the only one that ever really did well was Brokeback Mountain, but that was mostly women going to see it because they were intrigued uh, about the a dynamic of two masculine men falling in love with each other. Uh, it's, it's an agenda that no one wants. Um, th these movies fail every single time almost that they come out and they're never going to learn their lesson because they're ideologues. They are religious zealots about this sexual revolution and sexual identity garbage. They're always going to keep pushing it and, and it's worth the $18 million that they lose every time or the $20 million that they lose every time. It's they, this is their form of evangelization uh, to the world, this sexual liberation theology. Very interesting analysis. Terry Schilling, president of the American Principles Project, always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Coming up, researchers at a Texas university may have a solution to the ongoing fentanyl crisis. And it's been a year since the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a high school football coach who prayed on field. Has it made a difference? More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The state of Florida is divesting $2 billion of assets from the investment management company BlackRock. This is over the company's push for environmental, social, and governance standards, or ESG. Florida Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Petronas announced Thursday that Florida Treasury will immediately begin to freeze all securities and investments managed by BlackRock. This includes $1.4 billion worth of long-term securities and over $600 million of short-term investments. Critics of ESG say it's a movement to advance a progressive political agenda. Petronas criticized BlackRock's push for ESG, saying, quote, 
It's undemocratic of major asset managers to use their power to influence societal outcomes. The Florida CFO says he doesn't believe BlackRock will deliver maximized returns and that the Florida Treasury will relocate the investments elsewhere. Crypto can't catch a break. Binance, the world's biggest cryptocurrency exchange, is investigating a hacking incident that affected a number of crypto tokens today. The company's founder and CEO, Changpeng Zhao, said that a private key was hacked. Private keys are used to encrypt or decrypt data. Anchor and Hay tokens were both affected. Binance tweeted that it has paused withdrawals. It also assured users that this is not an attack against the company and that its team is working to investigate. The Supreme Court next week will start hearing oral arguments on a case about First Amendment religious freedom. It's about a web designer in Colorado who's being forced to create sites that celebrate same-sex marriage. In this case, artist and website designer Lori Smith from 303 Creative is suing the Colorado Civil Rights Division. The state is compelling her to produce a same-sex wedding website, and it's something she says goes against her Christian faith. In 2021, a federal appeals court ruled against the designer, and she appealed to the Supreme Court. Smith's attorneys say they are confident the high court will rule in their favor. One of them said, quote, We're very hopeful that the U.S. Supreme Court will affirm the right of all Americans to say what they believe without fear of government punishment. Back in 2018, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a Christian baker in Colorado who refused to make a cake celebrating same-sex marriage. In less than a week, Oregon is set to enact the most restrictive gun measure in the nation. But a second legal challenge was just filed in federal court. As the challenge plays out, firearm sales continue to set records in the state. The new law will require Oregon residents to undergo a background check and take a class to obtain a firearm permit. It also bans magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. The measure is set to take effect on December 8th. Both legal complaints are focused on the magazine ban. They seek to prevent the measure from taking effect while a judge weighs its constitutional merit. One of the plaintiff's lawyers wrote that the constitutional right to bear arms, quote, must include the right to own magazines, since without bullets, the right to bear arms would be meaningless. Researchers say they have developed a fentanyl vaccine. Scientists from the University of Houston say it could potentially combat the nation's growing drug crisis. Texas Governor Greg Abbott remarked that the vaccine could address one of the most serious lethal problems in the country. Researcher Colin Hale of the University of Houston says when the vaccine is administered, the body develops antibodies against fentanyl. These antibodies bind to fentanyl if it is consumed and prevent it from getting into the brain where it may trigger euphoric centers or trigger uh, respiratory depression and opioid overdose death. Quite literally, fentanyl is killing Texas. Fentanyl is now the number one killer in America by people between the ages of 18 and 45. The DEA administrator said that fentanyl is the single deadliest drug threat our nation has ever encountered. Researchers believe the vaccine could benefit multiple categories of people and even animals used by law enforcement agents. And speaking of the drug crisis, 10 middle school students are suspected of having overdosed non-fatally. The students are between just 12 and 15 years old and go to a school in Los Angeles. The Los Angeles Fire Department said that health officials found the students in mild to moderate distress yesterday. Seven of the students were taken to local hospitals specializing in pediatric medicine, while three were released on scene. 
Officials confirm the suspected overdose was not fentanyl-related, but have yet to state exactly what substance probably was ingested. And the Los Angeles Times reported that the captain of the fire department thinks it possibly could have been cannabis edibles. Authorities combed the school premises to ensure that no other students had overdosed or were suffering from symptoms. A year has passed since the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a public school football coach who lost his job after praying on the field. But has the ruling changed the game? Assistant coach Joseph Kennedy of the Bremerton High School football team was fired for praying on field after games. The school is located in Washington State, just outside of Seattle. A national uproar followed the firing and stoked discussions about religious liberty. But what are coaches and players saying after the Supreme Court ruled in his favor? You know, football gets, it's war essentially, you know. It gets dirty out there, you know. There's injuries, all bunch, like whole bunch of stuff happens out there. So you always want to make sure you pray to your man above, whoever you worship, you know. Some coaches cherish on-field prayer and what it does for the team. West Bloomfield High School's football coach makes prayer an integral part of his team's games, while also allowing students to choose their own approach. I've never made anyone come to us and pray with us before kickoff, so it's never a situation where I'm looking to see who wasn't participating. So um, it, was never, it was never a situation where we made anybody come and do it. We just did it, and those who wanted to join have been joining you know, ever since. I'm the football coach at Dearborn Fortson High School, also in Michigan, has a different view of team prayer. He isn't looking to change the way he's done things. I actually was flooded by calls and they were hoping that uh, I would take advantage of the ruling and, and we would do our actual prayer out on the field. So, uh, but that's not the way we've operated. He chooses to keep prayer in the locker room instead to avoid any potential controversy that would distract from football. A coach from another Michigan school says the Supreme Court ruling leaves teams with options. We respect the Supreme Court's decision, definitely. I think it does make it easier for the coaching staff if they would like to participate. Uh, but these best practices have been around for years here where the players make it their thing. Since the Supreme Court ruling, Coach Kennedy is expected to move back to Washington State from Florida and resume his job in 2023. He'll likely continue his on-field prayer. There will be more games in the college football playoff. The board announced it will expand from four teams to 12 teams beginning in 2024. Earlier this year, the board voted in favor of this expansion, but it wasn't going to start until 2026. However, the College Football Management Committee asked for it to happen sooner. The national championship game for the postseason will be in Atlanta in January 2025 and in Miami the following year. A San Diego Bay webcam captured a near collision between two Navy ships on Tuesday. A Navy destroyer nearly collided with a dock landing ship when both were traveling in opposite directions. Radio communication between the USS Momsen, the destroyer, and the USS Harper's Ferry helped avoid the mishap. The Pentagon says there were no injuries or damage to the warships because of the close call. Navy officials say they will investigate the incident. And still to come, a delegation from the U.K. visits Taiwan. They stressed cooperation, especially regarding military defense in the face of Chinese communist aggression. And the president of the European Commission said that Ukraine's war dead has topped 100,000. But officials immediately backed off her remarks. We'll have the details soon when we return.
Welcome back. A British delegation visits Taiwan to discuss areas of cooperation and support. Here's what the chair of the British Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee said about the visit. And I would be disappointed if the Chinese ambassador has criticized us for coming here because dialogue matters. And I can't believe that the Chinese government would criticize dialogue because they themselves believe that dialogue and keeping all avenues of dialogue are open. She said the committee met with President Tsai Ing-wen and the focus was on how to maintain peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific and how Britain can play a role as a fellow democracy. Like most countries, Britain has no formal diplomatic ties with democratically governed Taiwan, but has stepped up its support for the island in the face of a rising military threat from Beijing. While the United States is Taiwan's most important foreign source of weapons, British companies have been helping develop Taiwan's new fleet of domestically built submarines. Beijing accused the visiting British lawmakers of gross interference in China's internal affairs and threatened a forceful response. China, the European Union's biggest trade partner and also a systemic rival. When European Council President Charles Michel met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in Beijing Thursday, he sought to balance the two sides. Here's more on his trip. During his one-day visit to China, he expressed his union's wish for more exports to the world's second-largest economy. But he was also firm with Beijing in the defense of democracy and fundamental freedoms. Michel pressed China to open up more sectors to European companies while seeking to reduce dependency on China. On the European side, market access remains very open, while in China, several sectors remain much more closed. We need greater reciprocity. We need a more balanced relationship with no over-dependencies, a real level playing field for our companies. Earlier this year, the EU described China as an economic competitor and a systemic rival. As for the Ukraine war, Michel once again urged Beijing to take action. I urged President Xi, as we did at our EU-China summit in April, to use his influence on Russia to respect the UN Charter. Michel added that during his talks with Xi, he had raised the issue of human rights, fundamental freedoms, and rights of minorities. He didn't specifically mention the protests emerging in China in recent days. Chinese state media Xinhua News Agency reported that Xi Jinping told Michel to continue investing in China and to oppose economic decoupling. Ten months into the clash between Kyiv and Moscow, Ukraine's death toll has remained a mystery. Recently, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen put the number at over 100,000, but her remarks were immediately deleted by officials. Here's that story. We are ready to start working with the international community. In a speech earlier this week, Ursula von der Leyen claimed that more than 100,000 Ukrainian military personnel have died. That, along with a huge number of civilians killed in the conflict. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought death, devastation, and unspeakable suffering. We all remember the horrors of Butcher. It is estimated that more than 20,000 civilians and more than 100,000 Ukrainian military officers have been killed so far. Russia must pay for its horrific crimes. Despite her words of certainty, hours later her statements were scrubbed from the official record. The video posted on her social media account was also re-edited. About 10 seconds of the sentence was dropped, with no further mention of the death toll. 
We all remember the horrors of Butcher. Russia must pay for its horrific crimes. EC spokesperson Dana Spinant soon clarified what she termed the inaccuracy of figures. She tweeted, the estimation used from external sources should have referred to casualties, i.e. both killed and injured, and was meant to show Russia's brutality. Both Ukraine and Russia are tight-lipped about their true casualties. Kyiv has largely refrained from providing any such figures. Last month, U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff Head General Mark Milley said Russian troops have suffered more than 100,000 casualties, adding that Ukraine may have suffered a similar toll, though Milley didn't provide any basis for the assertion. Meanwhile, contrary to popular claims of Kyiv's victory, Ukrainian troops appear to be dwindling in Donetsk. In an interview this week, retired U.S. General Wesley Clark described front lines in the region as a killing ground where Ukrainian forces were, quote, taking heavy losses. The U.S. has sanctioned three North Korean officials tied to the nation's nuclear program. This comes after Pyongyang launched a series of missiles recently. The most recent was on November 18th. The Department of the Treasury sanctions target Chan Il-ho, Yu Jin, and Kim Soo-gil. They're officials and the country's Workers' Party. The European Union also sanctioned all three earlier this year. U.S. officials have repeatedly condemned North Korea's missile launches. Leader Kim Jong-un has said he wants to have the world's most powerful nuclear force. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, in France, President Macron's election campaigns are under investigation over links with a U.S. consultancy firm. But a recent event has cast doubt over the impartiality of the prosecutor in charge. And Israeli politician Benjamin Netanyahu and his party reach a deal for a right-wing coalition government. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. In France, the Financial Prosecutor's Office is probing the financing of President Emmanuel Macron's election campaign in connection with U.S. consultancy group McKinsey. Now, it's been reported that the prosecutor in charge was invited to a private party at Elysee Palace raising questions over impartiality. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has more. While French President Emmanuel Macron is on an official trip in Washington, his links to American consultancy firm McKinsey is in the crosshair of the French justice system. According to leading French newspaper Le Parisien, two investigations have been opened into suspected illegal financing of Macron's electoral campaigns in 2017 and 2022. A Senate probe found that the French government was too dependent on consultancy firms, such as McKinsey, and that it spent last year over £750 million on consultancy group. McKinsey received the most. That is to say that McKinsey consultants organized Macron's campaign or actively participated in Macron's campaign free of charge and that there was then a return of favor through contracts that were awarded in a favorable, probably illegal manner to McKinsey. But we must emphasize these are only suspicions. The National Financial Prosecutor's Office is a special judicial institution created by former French President François Hollande for high-profile cases, notably investigations that include political figures. 
Virag says it remains to be seen whether the prosecutor is genuinely investigating. The question is whether the National Financial Prosecutor's Office has decided to open the case to make sure that no other jurisdiction in France opens it. And that's a possibility. And by doing so, it's a way of preparing the cover-up or the first-class burial of this case because we can assume that the prosecutor, the financial prosecutor, will investigate in such a way to prove that the president is innocent. So the question is, can we have confidence in this process? Recently, a leak to media outlet Politico has cast doubt on the independence of the court. The prosecutor in charge of the investigation was invited to a private party at Macron's official residence, the Elysee Palace. Virag says the party was not recorded in the official protocol. That is to say, no one seemed to be offended by the fact that the head of the National Financial Prosecutor's Office is invited to party at the Elysee Palace. Even though he is in charge of investigating President Macron, this poses a serious problem of faith in the judiciary. We can see that behind this affair there is a fundamental issue, which is the submission of the Public Prosecutor's Office under the executive. That means the Public Prosecutor's Office is biased towards towards the executive in France, which is incompatible with what a democracy should be. David Gives, NTD News, Paris. Israeli Prime Minister-designate Benjamin Netanyahu reached a coalition deal with the Religious Zionism Party. The deal brings him closer to securing a new government after last month's election. Netanyahu's Likud party says religious Zionism will be given control of the finance ministry as part of a rotation. It will also have strong influence over policies in the West Bank and the country's justice system. The deal nets Netanyahu control of 46 of the Knesset's 120 seats so far. The religious Zionism party opposes Palestinian statehood and supports extending Israeli sovereignty into the West Bank. It will be given authority over Jewish settlement activity there, though it will be in coordination with Netanyahu. The agreement comes after Netanyahu's conservative alliance won a comfortable victory in a November 1st election, Israel's fifth election in less than four years. Peru's Congress has approved a motion to begin to impeach President Pedro Castillo. This marks a third try to unseat the leader since he took office last year. Opposition lawmakers initiated the move. They accused Castillo of using the presidency to benefit himself and allies. He also faces a constitutional charge related to a corruption investigation. The president dismissed the complaint, calling it a coup attempt. The Congress approved the impeachment proceedings with 73 votes in favor and 32 against. 87 votes out of 130 congressmen will be needed to overthrow the president. Castillo will be summoned for a response next Wednesday. And in Australia, a high-profile case has been shelved. It involves a former government advisor who was accused of sexually assaulting a colleague in Parliament. At a press conference, Australian prosecutors said the trial had severely damaged the complainant's mental health. Brittany Higgins is an ex-staffer for a former defense industry minister. She says her colleague, Bruce Lerman, sexually assaulted her in March 2019. The alleged incident took place in a minister's office in Canberra's Parliament House. During the course of the proceedings, Higgins described facing a personal attack she had not countered in more than 20 years in her position. Prosecutors said her life could be in jeopardy if the trial continues. That's based on evidence provided by two independent medical experts. 
An Australian former high school teacher who was the subject of the hit podcast, The Teacher's Pet, was sentenced today to 24 years in jail for murdering his wife 40 years ago. It's a case that has gripped the nation. The cold case against Christopher Dawson was reopened in 2018. That's after the podcast put pressure on police to revisit their investigation into charges that prosecutors previously dismissed, citing a lack of evidence. Christopher Michael Dawson for the murder of Lynette Dawson on or about 8 January 1982. I sentence you to imprisonment for 24 years commencing on 30 August 2022 and expiring on 29 August 2046 with a non-parole period of 18 years expiring on 29 August 2040. We respect and thank Judge Harrison for his sentence and hope Chris Dawson lives a long life in order to serve that sentence. Dawson will be eligible for parole in 2040 when he will be 92 years old. Just ahead, traditional Azerbaijani wrestling culture vies to be added to UNESCO's list of intangible cultural heritage. Nowadays, dozens of teams compete in Azerbaijan. And Hungary nominates its string band traditions for UNESCO's list. The band includes the violin, viola, and upright bass. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. A type of traditional wrestling culture existed in many Azerbaijani cities from the 15th to 17th centuries. Now the sport is grappling to be added to UNESCO's list of intangible cultural heritage. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on this style of civilization's oldest sport. These athletes are training to compete in personal combat, or what's called Zorhana. Zorhana is a traditional system of athletics and a form of martial arts originally used to train Persian warriors. In the past, special Zorhana schools existed in Azerbaijan. Under the guidance of experienced mentors, men would learn the art of wrestling. This sport was developed as a sport by an Azerbaijani wrestler. He was born in Ganja. His name was Puyaya Vali. Until Vali, this sport was used only for the training of soldiers. Vali systematized and spread it 700 years ago to make it popular among young people. Tools used in Zorkana games are believed to be replacements for ancient weapons. Metal chains are used instead of bowstrings, and wooden sheets imitate shields. The same types of tools were used for training in the past. All the tools there represent a single combat tool. Each one reflects the technique of ancient weapons. Every soldier or athlete uses tools according to his weight. For example, there is a shaft tool that replaces a sword. It comes in different weights. It starts from 3 kilograms. In individual competitions, it is up to 20 kilograms, 25 kilograms, 30 kilograms. In 2009, the Azerbaijani national team won first place at the second Zorkhana Events European Championship in Frankfurt. It won 14 of the 17 gold medals. Nowadays, dozens of teams compete in Azerbaijan. We have the European Championship ahead of us. It may be in Turkey. There should also be a world championship. We're getting ready for it. Training continues. There are other young people who play the sport. We have good training together with them, thanks to our teacher, Kayam. 
The sport is now organized by the International Federation of Zorkana Sports, established in 2005. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Kazakhstan is seeking to have a traditional puppet performance granted UNESCO intangible cultural heritage status. The art form traces its roots back to mountain goat hunting. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Orteke is the name of this traditional Kazakh musical puppet performance. The musician uses a fishing line on his middle finger to move the marionette. Orteki is the puppet theater of the steppe. In general, this thing was invented for the entertainment of children. The person who plays the Dombra instrument clings a fishing line onto the middle finger that comes from the Orteki figurine. There is a mechanism below, so when they play the Dombra instrument, mountain goats jump and dance to the rhythms of the composition. Local legend says the puppet imitates the movements of a mountain goat trapped by hunters. The origin of the word Orteki is this. According to legend, they say that there were large pits in the mountains where mountain goats would fall and would jump trying to, but unable to get out. Teki means goat or means pit. Musician Abzal Arakbayev organized his first band in 2008. His goal is to promote forgotten Kazakh traditions. He says Orteke is one of the oldest traditions in Kazakh culture. Previously, in every family, there was an old man or a grandmother who told legends, fairy tales, fables, and all of them were accompanied not only by playing a musical instrument, but also they showed firsthand how the character moved. It could be a journey of a wolf cub or some interesting journeys of a fox or hare. The first time Arik Bayev heard about the art form was when he was a student. But he had to study it exclusively in books. There were no real musicians or elderly people who could demonstrate it. Arik Bayev says the performance is being revived, but only by a few professional musicians. In 2009 to 2011, I remember we organized festivals in Almaty, Kazakhstan to promote and preserve this art because at that time there were very few people who were natural performers of this art, even around Kazakhstan. Then about 15 people in total gathered, 15 performers, although it was an international festival. This year, UNESCO will consider adding Orteke to its list of intangible cultural heritage. Arik Bayev hopes people will be able to appreciate it and do more to revive this dying art form. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Hungary has nominated its string band traditions for UNESCO's list of intangible cultural heritage. Thanks to classes and dance houses, today this unique folk tradition survives and flourishes. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more details on the music. Sombor Uyi is determined to pass Hungary's folk music traditions on to the next generation. At the heart of the tradition, string bands which evolved from classical string quartets. The bands include the violin, viola, and upright bass. Hungarian folk music is essentially characteristic of each region in a different way, and as each region has their own micro-community, they also have their own specific musical world. Each village has its own very unique folk music. In rural areas, string bands became an essential element of social and family occasions. The repertoire of pieces often numbered in the thousands. 
To me, what we do here is not traditionalism, but the everyday use of our own culture. For us, it's entertainment, a quality form of entertainment that would be good for as many people as possible to enjoy themselves. And culturally, it's interesting because it's unique in the world. I dare say that nowhere else in the world you can see neighboring villages having completely different folk music patterns. Hungarian composer and pianist Franz Liszt played a significant role in Hungarian folk music in the middle of the 19th century. He often collected and documented different melodies. Thanks to formal training courses, hundreds of folk musicians have kept the tradition alive. I myself love music very much, and I'm also a music player and teaching was an obvious choice. I am always happy to pass on my knowledge and help in my own way. And Uyi is proud of his students. Their passion drives him. It's the enthusiasm of the students for music that motivates me. That's why I love teaching it. And it's a great pleasure for me to see that they enjoy doing it. They do it for their own pleasure. No one is forcing them. The tradition could soon gain international recognition. The UNESCO Intangible Heritage Committee is meeting in Morocco from November 28th until December 3rd. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And good news, UNESCO has already granted status to all three of the cultural forms we just mentioned. The recognition marks a revival of the ancient wrestling sport, the theatrical art, and regional folk music, a big step in passing on these traditions to future generations. And just ahead, overjoyed fans from Japan celebrate as their team takes a surprise victory over Spain. Find out which teams advance to the next round in the World Cup and hear fans' reactions after the break. In the World Cup, Japan, Spain, and Morocco all advanced to the group of last 16. Japan beat Spain in yesterday's match, while Morocco beat Canada. Germany and Costa Rica have both been eliminated and won't be heading to the next round. Entity's Cost Temenes tells us more about the results and the fans' reactions. Ecstatic Japan fans came out of Khalifa International Stadium singing and dancing after the Samurai Blue came from one down to topple Spain 2-1 on Thursday. Not just the last 16. I hope Japan will do their best to advance to the quarterfinals for the first time. I will continue supporting Japan in the next knockout round stage. It was a tense start when Spain scored the opening goal, but Japan quickly recovered and took the lead. Japanese soccer fans at a Tokyo bar were chanting, waving flags and jumping around in excitement. I never thought Japan would advance first place in the group. Thank you, Japan. I love you guys. Japan's win means they topped Group E and will advance to the last 16. Dozens of Japan supporters hung around after the game to collect trash left around the stands of the stadium. There's a Japanese proverb that you leave things cleaner than you found them when you arrived. That's to say we make the place tidier and cleaner before we leave, and that's something we were taught by our parents when we were kids. Followed by Japan in Group E is Spain in second place, who finished ahead of third place Germany with only a goal in difference. Japan will face Croatia in the last 16 while Spain will meet Morocco. The disappointment was great for Germany and Costa Rica after both countries failed to make it to the last 16. The best one. Okay. 
Despite yesterday's win over Costa Rica, four times champions Germany sensationally crashed out at the first hurdle for the second consecutive time. Very difficult to have to see Germany twice in a row in the group stage out. I don't understand how come Germany lose to Japan, or Japan beat Costa Rica, um, and then Spain. We were expecting like to beat Japan for a lot of goals today, and they beat us well in Spain. This World Cup is so insane. Everything is so uncertain, but I mean, this is football. Morocco beat Canada 2-1 to finish top of their group. With their team now having cruised to the round of the last 16, Moroccan fans were overjoyed, chanting, singing and waving flags. I feel like all of the Moroccans and Arab countries, we are really happy and thank God all of the Arabs participated this joyful time. In earlier matches, Morocco had tied with Croatia and scored a surprise win over Belgium, the second-ranked team in the world. Morocco will now face Spain in the next round. The United States advanced to the last 16 with a win over Iran on Tuesday. They will face the Netherlands at 10 a.m. Eastern Time Saturday. Costa Menes, NTD News. Most of us love sweet food and drink, but after that short burst of sweetness, you may worry about how sweets affect your waistline and your overall health. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Experts agree that Americans eat and drink way too much sugar. It's contributing to the overall obesity epidemic. Much of the sugar we eat isn't found naturally in food. It's added during processing or preparation. Sugar-sweetened beverages include soda, energy drinks and sports drinks. These are the leading source of added sugars in the American diet. Over time, excess sweetness can take a toll on your health. Several studies have found a direct link between excess sugar consumption, obesity and cardiovascular problems. Because of these harmful effects, many health organizations recommend that Americans cut back. Experts recommend a daily limit on added sugar of no more than 10% of calories. For added sugars can be hard to identify. They may be listed as sucrose, corn sweetener, high fructose corn syrup, fruit juice concentrates, nectars, raw sugar, malt syrup, maple syrup, fructose sweeteners, liquid fructose, honey and molasses. If any of these words are among the first few ingredients on a food label, the food is high in sugar. To find out the total amount of sugar in a food, look for sugars on the nutrition facts label. You'll find that under the category total carbohydrate. Focus on nutrition rich whole foods without added sugars. Here are a few ideas. Choose water, milk or unsweetened tea or coffee instead of sodas, sports drinks, energy drinks and fruit drinks. Reduce sugar in recipes. To enhance flavor, add vanilla, cinnamon, or nutmeg. Eat fresh, canned, frozen, and dried fruits without added sugar. Use fruits to top foods like cereal and pancakes rather than sugars, syrups, or other sweet toppings. Read the ingredients list to pick a food with little or no added sugar. And finally, use the nutrition facts label to choose packaged foods with less sugars. This year's highest grossing movie was in theaters for more than five months, but if you somehow missed it on the big screen or wanted to see it for a second or third time, you're in luck. What he has to teach you may very well mean the difference between life and death.
Top Gun Maverick is zooming back into theaters. Paramount is re-releasing the blockbuster sequel, which has already grossed nearly $1.5 billion worldwide for a two-week run. Beginning today, it's in cinemas across the U.S., including select IMAX and other large-format theaters. Those days have come and gone. Perhaps, perhaps not. Also returning to the big screen, Indiana Jones. Lucasfilm released a teaser trailer for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny yesterday. Harrison Ford returns as the hero archaeologist known for his quick wit, fast feet, long whip, and fedora. The trailer is light on details, but the new installment will introduce several new stars to the franchise, including Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Antonio Banderas. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is slated to open in theaters on June 30th, 2023. It will mark the fifth installment in the film franchise. But if your favorite franchise is Transformers, you're also in luck. We're getting a sneak peek at the latest installment. Paramount Pictures has released the first trailer for Transformers Rise of the Beasts. The action film is also set to hit movie theaters in June of next year. This will be the seventh movie since the Transformers first hit the big screen in 2007. Transformers has been wildly successful at the box office over the last 15 years, grossing $5 billion worldwide. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.